Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My guest today is Dave Poland, co-president of Buccini Poland and chairman of PM Hotel Group. In this conversation, we talk about everything from hotel investing, raising a private equity fund, building a hotel management company known for culture, What I found really interesting is Dave's enduring passion for building businesses that last through real estate cycles. We even go into some insights into how he structures deals and how he thinks about lenders in difficult times. We also end with an amazing story about how he came to be the owner of an MLS soccer team. Please enjoy my conversation today with Dave Poland. Dave Poland, my good friend. You have always been a little bit of an inspiration to me in my career. Actually, I want to start with a funny story. I remember I was at some networking event in New York City. It was probably at a hotel that you were somehow connected with. And it was a Hilton thing. And we were there. And I was talking to some of the Hilton bigwigs. And they're like, oh, you need to meet Dave Poland. I'm like, oh, Dave Poland? I going to meet him? And then I went and we talked. And like you're probably like, oh, who's this annoying little kid? And that was, I think, my real first time meeting you. And then after that, we became really good friends and trusted colleagues. So appreciate you for coming on the show. Hey, man, it's great to be here. No, honestly, like from the moment we started hanging out, I was like, wow, Jake knows what he's doing. He's like way ahead of his like age cohort and the way like you understood the hotel business. You got the operations and the capital market stuff. You have an amazing eye for development. So I'm the honored one. Appreciate you having me on. I'm really honored to be your friend. So you have so much going on across so many business verticals. I really think the listeners would benefit if you gave us a little bit about your background and how you got started. Hey, thanks, Jake. I think like a lot of people in our industry, I started because my family was in the hotel business. My dad had built some hotels and I was working for him. And my initial thought was I was going to be the assistant general manager at age 16 and follow him around and you know, order people to do things that I thought were important. But instead, that first summer when I was 15, went straight into the dishroom, started washing dishes. It must have been 100 degrees back there. And my supervisor was especially able, I think we would say today, wasn't especially communicative. And the first day of lunch, he took his big gray bus bin into which he had been like shaving leftover steak and grilled cheese sandwiches and ate that for lunch. So I cried my eyes out probably for four or five hours in that afternoon shift, but then like got to understand that, you know, people make this business work and I love being part of a team. And so I knew that one day I wanted to be a part of the business in some form or fashion. 
then after um, going to hotel school, I went into consulting with LH for a couple of years. That's a reference for old people. And then started my business at age 25. I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur at some point. And I had met playing football at Cornell, Rob Buccini, my, my lifelong friend now, and also my partner. And we started with one crappy hotel in Fairfax County, Virginia that we built. And he built one office building. But the development part of it wasn't really the initial plan. We said, you know what? This is an interesting time because the RTC had taken back tons of assets from different banks that were failed in the 80s. So we started in the early 90s. And in that six-month window after we started our business, it went from a buyer's market to a seller's market. So we completely missed the window to buy all the distressed stuff that our whole business thesis was built around. So we're like, oh, crap, what are we going to do now? We need some income. So because our families had been in development, his, excuse me, on the commercial side, mine on the hotel side, we said, okay, let's buy land. It's the last asset class to come back. And so we bought a hotel site and an office building site, and we got started. Today, we're about 4,000 associates on the hotel side. We manage between 65 and 70 hotels, depending on how you classify the you know, stuff that's in development in 20 states. We're also multi-asset class, as I mentioned before. So we do office, we do multifamily. We have an asset management group called Cortan, which we're really excited about, which we may touch on later. And then we have a great story about how we got into the sports business, which if you want to dig into that, we can do that and have some fun too. I want to hear about all of the above, but damn, that is like, you're a major company. So why, when you were 25, did you not just take the maybe easy route and go work for your dad? What made you want to start your own company? Yeah, listen, the blazing insights that struck me at 25 um, was, okay, my dad's in Portland and I've already dated all the cute girls there. So I wanted to go to Washington, D.C., where my uncle was, my dad's brother. He owned the Wizards and the Capitals at the time. He's since uh, passed away. But I said, that's a great place to be. I knew a lot of people from Cornell Hotel School there. It's the hotel capital of the world. And so I wish I could say the decision was after much thought and study, but I felt that doing something entrepreneurial with him, I wouldn't learn as much. I wouldn't have as much responsibility. And he was frankly supportive of it, even though I think he was a little disappointed I didn't choose to join him. And when you teamed up with Buccini, was the plan always hotels? Or were you guys just like, oh, we're going to do real estate and whatever we find, we find? No, it's, I was in the hotel school and I knew that hotels were my passion. And again, I just I love the teamwork. I love the complexity of it, right? Because you have real estate, you have operations, you have brand, you have location, you have demand generators, you have revenue management. Like, I just, I think it's so intriguing. I think our business is the coolest one in the whole world. And then add the design part to it. It just gets really fun too. And we also knew that having one asset class, even at age 25, and this wasn't because it's something we studied, but in my consulting days, man, did I see hotels cycle. Man, the early 90s, brutal. So we decided that being diversified by geography and by asset class was pretty smart. And again, it wasn't because we sat down and whiteboarded the whole thing. It was more instinctual. And that's really how we started. And the other thing that I think makes our startup story a little unique is that we knew that hotel management, I knew it growing up, was so different than real estate. Just the incentives are different, the culture's different, the skill sets are different. So we set up our management company from day one as a separate entity. And so I've you know been chairman of that business and provide strategy, but the super talented people at PM Hotel Group do the day-to-day, -day. they actually do the MA work for us, they do the BD, et cetera. 
And on the real estate side, you know, I'm really involved with the hotel development and capital markets work, but I'm really only peripherally involved in the office multi and other stuff we do. So when you were setting up that management company, did you just happen to separate it when you were 25 and maybe get lucky into that idea? Or is that more strategic to have an operating side and an investment development side and then a multi-asset side? Yeah, there's really two reasons. The first one is my partner in the management business, who's no longer with us, but that's the M in PM Hotel Group. Greg Miller, he was my boss at Labathon Bournemouth hired me. And so we wanted to incentivize him with ownership. And that's why having a standalone hotel management company made a lot of sense because we just had a separate set of incentives for people that were really focused in that part of our enterprise. And it didn't really make sense to have them involved with office and other things that we were doing. And even on the hotel ownership side, and again, going back to the whole idea of Hotel operations and hotel construction development and capital markets are just completely different things. So that's why we wanted them running on separate tracks. So let's talk about that because I don't think all the listeners appreciate just how damn complex hotels are. And they maybe think it's kind of like another real estate asset class. Can you kind of break it down for everyone? Why does everyone always say hotels are hard? They're complex. They're an operating business. They're a real estate business. Yeah, I would say hotels are more like running Tesla or IBM than running real estate. And I definitely don't give the people who do real estate because they're my partners and my friends any short shrift, right? It takes the same intellectual challenge or has the same intellectual challenges. And it is difficult and relationship-centric, all those things that make a successful business. But in addition to all that, then you have the operating business complexity. So you have supply chain, but most importantly, human resources. Man, if you don't nail that, if you don't get the culture right, because the hotel management company, we said, we're going to start a culture, not a company. And, and that attracted people that really wanted to take risks and do new things and that were flexible and that were willing to take chances and frankly, work on the weekends, you know, doing everything you have to do. And Six day GM. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but their incentives are... Now, I made that guy happy when he came in having a bad day or that family really needed something. I was there for them. Or, you know, they came to the wrong hotel, but we found a way to accommodate them. I mean, hey, someone had a cat and needed food. Like, there's just a trillion challenges that present themselves. And if you get excited about making people happy, there is no better business, right? The financial success is important too. But if you think about the complexity of the hotel business, it starts with operations. And I think that's more important than real estate. You can take a great asset and really blow it. And you can have maybe a secondary location with an okay asset and really blow the doors off with great strategy and great execution. So I just I love that challenge. And I love saying, okay, we may not have the shiniest office building in the best location because that's going to get all the best tenants and the best leasing. In the hotel space, again, you can outcompete and outperform and it's relationship centric. And now there's so much technology involved and revenue management strategy and digital strategy that um, the complexity allows organizations like ours that have the people and the resources to really outperform. And anyone can sit here and say that, but our portfolio runs 115% RevPAR index across 31 brands in 20 states with 65 to 70 hotels. And at the same time, we're doing technical services to design new hotels that will be really competitive in their marketplace as well. So just tons of different things going on. So I know what RevPAR index means, but just a quick 
primer. What does that mean when you're doing 115 RevPAR index? What does that mean? And is that easy? Can anyone do that? Yeah. Okay, Jake, that's market share. And what that means is if you're 100% RevPAR index, that means you're getting your fair share. So if there's a million dollars of revenue in that market, you're getting 100,000 of it, you know, your 10% fair share. If that same million dollars were there, but you're doing 115% RevPAR index, then we're getting $115,000 of revenue. And so every incremental dollar in our business is so powerful because we have significant fixed costs, you know, real estate tax, insurance, general manager salary. So you have a bunch of those costs and every dollar above that level really goes a long way to contribute to your margin. So going back to the people and culture side, one of the challenges that we had, my company had before COVID was getting that people and culture environment right at the operations level. And we've done a ton to fix it. I'd be curious to know what, when you were starting out in the earlier days, what were some of those screw ups, some of those challenges that you faced that you've now cleaned up today? Yeah, well, specifically on the culture side, I don't know that we always had it right. You know, we're very humble and we're a learning organization. And we want to look back, you know, 10 years ago and go, oh my God, I can't believe we did it that way. We just always want to obsolete ourselves by, you know, by being innovative. But I think our, our culture really started to click. We really started to attract people who were best in class at what they did, had their technical ability at the top of their game by growing. Because people want to do new things. They want new challenges. They want a place to go with their career. So if an organization has, let's just say five hotels and has always had five hotels, you're probably not going to get the top students coming out of you know, whatever hotel school or the most talented leadership, et cetera. So we knew growth was important. So we've always had a growth strategy and we've communicated that internally and externally. And the second thing is you can't impose culture. Again, maybe that was a lesson learned. And so we, every five years, have several people come together. It's not the same people every time either and talk about what our culture is because if you say, oh, my culture is um, teamwork, but it's really not, then you shouldn't talk about that. And so we let our senior leaders and key associates within our organization tell us what our culture is. And if there's things we have to fix, we'll clean it up. But generally, they're saying, no, no, you guys do a great job with collaboration, teamwork, letting us be entrepreneurs and make some mistakes within guardrails. And really, it's respect up and down. So the dishwasher to the IBM group that's doing a million dollars of revenue in one event, having respect as our forward-facing value, I think has done a lot. And especially in ingraining us with our communities. We could talk a little bit about that as well. But so it's respect, teamwork, entrepreneurial spirit, and being driven. So just not being satisfied with you know what comes easy, but being driven to do your best and to overperform. And with everything that's happened with COVID and the labor challenges, like that all sounds good for your corporate team, maybe your senior team. But what about the kind of hourly employees, the front desk people, the room attendants, the dishwasher, like you mentioned, do those culture initiatives flow down to them as well? And do they get it even with, you know, turnover and that sort of thing? Or do you kind of avoid turnover? Yeah, Jake, it's, it's a great question. So our average tenure is 2.7 years, which is almost double our peers. And a few ways that we do that is, if you think about, we have a Homewood Suite, we manage a Homewood Suites in Oakland, California. So if someone is working there, who would they, how they don't know me, why would they identify with PM Hotel Group? Hopefully they identify with the hotel in every case. 
But what we did was we actually set up our own TV network called PMTV. And at every break room, we're talking about our successes. There's four levels of it. One is PM Hotel information that we share, anniversaries, birthdays, grand openings, things like that. Then the next level down is what's happening in your region. Uh, for example, because we're involved with sports, we'll say, hey, everyone in the Philadelphia region, you're invited to come to the Philadelphia Union game. So we can talk about things that are happening there. And then there's things that are happening with the brand. So if it's a Canopy or if it's a Marriott, we'll actually play that branding video because not all of our associates are traveling and know the difference between a Canopy and a Marriott. And what does it mean? And what's the visual identity? So we want them to have that support and we want to have access to that imagery. And then finally, we have hotel level information. So, hey, Dave's been here 30 years, give him a high five. And so we have, it's pretty complicated to actually do that. But PMTV kind of brings everyone together and lets us talk about our culture across all hotels and all locations. And that's the first thing. And the second thing is we actually get out to the hotels, our senior leadership team. There's a lot of instances where you know people in our industry I don't know, they probably don't identify with their management company just because they've never met them. But I promise you, everyone in our company has met us or at least seen us on PM TV. Dude, my mind is blown. You have a TV channel? That's like, no, man, management companies like just stopped using DOS printers. I mean, that is <laughs> a real big investment in technology. You know your tenure of your hourly employees, 2.7. W- what kind of technology components have you built into the management company to know this stuff and to know what your KPIs are? Yeah. So, you know, Jake, again, learning by doing, just we're really humble. I'm no smarter than anyone else in our business. There's a lot of talented people doing what we do, but the pain points, that drives innovation. So when I was the GM of the first hotel and I was trying to do payroll, God, what a huge pain in the ass. So what we've done is we've employ technology to the extent possible and we take chances on it we'll be early adopters of it so that the general manager if he has an automated payroll system or she then they spend more time with the associates being strategic interfacing with the guests understanding who's at breakfast and what company they're from and, you know can we get the all in our going with that group etc so we have way over invested in technology for our peer group we use a human capital resource management company that you know we get these advanced stats from and allows for things like daily pay because when you're competing for talent those are the kind of things that can attract them and when i say what's daily pay so there's two really cool parts of it the first one is if i do a shift just in my regular scheduled hotel shift i can actually get paid a portion of that that day not all of it because we do have withholding and we don't want people to get too far over their skis so we'll give you 60 percent of what you earn that day into your bank account or a debit card at your discretion. So, hey, I've got a bill coming up or I didn't expect to have to do that, so I need some money. And you can go into our human resource management system and get it in one click. We monitor that, so if someone's doing it more than five times per month, we're gonna to talk to them and go, hey, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Do you have a need that we can help you with, et cetera? And then the second part of it is, and COVID taught us this, you can't take for granted that you're gonna have the resources you need because we were, we were denying a lot of revenue. I couldn't clean my rooms, so I couldn't sell it the next day. Or I had a huge group coming in Friday, so I couldn't sell the room Thursday. So you may have wanted to stay at the you know, Marriott Philadelphia Old City, but I didn't. I couldn't sell you the room because I couldn't clean it again the next day to be ready for the big block on the weekend. So we now have cluster-based scheduling. So if I need people 
to do a banquet at a hotel, we can send information out to other hotel associates in our company and they can sign up for those shifts and then they can get paid that day. So it's a really powerful way to get some flexibility in your, in your labor force. That is so cool. It's almost like you're gig economizing your management company to get that incremental labor. So is that, I know you started managing hotels for other people and that's part of your growth strategy. Does that kind of stuff help you get management contracts? And when you're trying to get management contracts, what else do you tell owners about? Yeah, so we're very, we spend a lot of time I say we're very invested in and committed to sustainability. We spend a lot of time talking about that. And there's more than just the it feels good part of it. We talk about how our hedging program that we have for energy, you know, there's a little lock in when it's opportune. We spend a lot of energy trying to understand what's happening in energy markets. So we can time that up well. But also, you know, things like composting. We have several pilots going in that regard. We have multiple people overseeing ECMs or energy conservation measures. We do energy audits of all the hotels that we manage so that we can advise ownership about investments that might be smart to make. You know, frankly, municipalities are catching up to us, meaning that some of those are becoming mandates anyway, but we already have the infrastructure to handle that. So owners love that. And then the second thing, it's not obvious. A key differentiator for management companies, and most people don't know this, is distribution costs. So sure, you can go on all the OTAs you want and fill a hotel up and pay 22% commission on that stuff. So we've actually demonstrated in our ownership pitches and to our existing owners that our distribution cost is substantially below the industry average. And we talk about how our revenue organization is set up to do that. So we don't just take any business that's out there and we don't just take the highest rated business. We're smart about what channels we employ to find the optimal occupancy. Um, and that's really resonated because when people do the analysis, when owners do the analysis, sometimes they're shocked at what they're paying to bring the revenue in. So let me get this straight. So different types of business have different costs, like commissions and different costs to get that business in the door. So you have a revenue team that specializes in maximizing the right type of business for the cost, and then you can somehow put all that data together and share it with an owner? Yeah, no, we, we have it aggregated by each hotel, by cluster, and by our overall company. And we're about 20% less than the average in that space. And so those are real dollars that come back to, uh, to owners. If you said the average was about twelve fifty per occupied room, we're in the low $10 range. So again, studies that we've done, and that that is powerful because... We all know margins really hard to maintain with labor rates soaring, with energy costs high, with supply chain challenges, delivery costs are higher because of the fuel costs. So if we can move margin, then we're doing a great job for our owners. I want to move to some two really cool hotels that you have in your portfolio. I think Virgin Nashville and Virgin New Orleans. And you don't manage those, which is is interesting. I'd like you to talk about that, but I'd also like you to talk about what you've learned as an owner seeing them manage the hotels for you and, and how, if anything, have you applied to the rest of your portfolio? We have a ton of regard for our friends at Virgin Hotels. First of all, we got involved with these deals because they were working on a project in Nashville already on the land 
they needed a development partner. And so we were one of the groups that they talked to and they ultimately chose us to, to team up with them. So their management was always part of the puzzle and uh, we're, we're happy with that. Um, they have some really great technical people, but what makes Virgin special, and I think this is true with some other luxury lifestyle brands, you know, one hotel comes to mind, one of the SH brands, you guys, you know them well. They have a really terrific luxury lifestyle model. If you were to take the Virgin Hotels Nashville, 262 rooms, it's doing between 15 and 20 million a year of food and beverage. If that were a Hilton or Weston, and even a really good one, gosh, maybe it's half of that. Maybe you're going $8 million of food and beverage. And I always laugh. Like, you know, if I took my wife for an anniversary to a Hilton for dinner, it would be the last anniversary. But if I take her to the Virgin Hotel, then she's like, oh man, my husband's really cool. I love the vibe here. And so they have the way of um, programming and talking about the brand and the kind of experiences that people will have in a really smart way. And I think there's some great perception of that virgin brand out there and not just in hotels, which is a tailwind. So instead of Marriott with 31 brands and a global distribution system that's among the best in the world, Virgin has much better awareness as an overall brand. And so that gives people the interest in learning more about the Virgin International and that opens the door on a sales trip, et cetera. And so so we've really enjoyed that. And because we have a, a pretty sophisticated hotel management enterprise here, at Pink Hotel Group, we actually are pretty active on the asset management side. So we have revenue calls every week. And again, we love their team and we think they work really hard and do a good job. But there are things that we can share with them that you know help you know further our collective goals. And also, you know, again, we've learned a lot from them, uh, especially on food and beverage programming and promotion. So do you think that the Hilton food and beverage model is dead or all Hilton owners now need to come up with a change because I'm not taking my wife to uh, the Hilton uh, restaurant either. Sorry, Chris Nassetta, whoever's listening here. But, you, you know, what What do like the Hilton guys, the Hilton owners need to think about now that you've seen the magic at Virgin? <laughs> well, you know, I want to I air my big grievance. First of all, with Hotel Food and Beverage, which is ancillary to that. Let's so go. Make headlines. Come on. All right. We have... Well, I wish it was a bigger deal, but we have club lounges in, in all our full-service full hotels. And you think about who's in that club lounge, you know, it's the elite traveler. And that person would be happy to pay for breakfast. But instead, we have to run a separate food and beverage operation, which is expensive, both labor, and we're cooking two different things in two different places and serving it and cleaning it. When we should have that energy down in the main restaurant and invest more there. Because, you know, when you walk in a restaurant, you're the first table or the second table, you're like, oh, wow, this is bad. But when a place is busy and it feels like it has a good vibe, you want to go, right? So I hate club lounges. You know, they're expensive. We'll keep doing them because the brands will make us. I know guests appreciate it when they use them, but I think it's kind of bad for the industry. Yeah, but no, on, on the... But aren't they kind of behind the times? Like, when was the last time you stayed in a hotel with a club lounge and, like, went to the club lounge to get some free mostly kind of semi-crappy breakfast when there's like a cool coffee shop downstairs or down the road. Like you're not doing that. Like are the brands like not figuring this out or what's the deal? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think Marriott's probably been innovating a little bit faster than other brands in this regard. And M Club, which is at the core of Marriott brand, is actually a, a really good solution. It's 
at the first floor level. So you can merchandise it and you can upsell it, which is a little bit harder when it's tucked away on an upper floor. Hey, let me show you. It's 40 bucks more a night. You can have access to it. The quality of food and actually the design of the space is really nice as well. So if we can get some revenue for it, I mind it a little bit less. And I think Marriott's figured out that again, having it in, at the main level of the hotel, and they're doing that also for shared from around, you know, has made it a little bit more relevant. But you know, back to your question about you know, what do we do in full service hotels in order to you know engage with our customers more on on food and beverage? You know, it's all about capture, and so. We're beverage centric as a company, and we feel like we can get the food right. But if we have a great burger, Caesar salad, steak, salmon, pasta, then I think we're meeting most of our travelers' needs because they want to go explore the community. And so we're going to be a great, I hate to say it's just an amenity, but the food for the most part is a little bit secondary to the purpose of them being in the hotel with us. But the beverage, we can get them before they go out to dinner and we can get them on the way back. And as you know, if you have a cool bar, instead of going to your room, maybe you're popping into the bar for a drink as well, or you'll take your laptop and work in the lobby lounge as opposed to you know, going up to your room and just watching CNN. So we've really focused on making cool bars as opposed to having fancy restaurants that people won't go to. Yeah, I love it. One of the things we're doing in our company we created this concept called provisions and for our non-destination restaurants, meaning restaurant within a Hilton that you and I aren't taking our wives to, we're creating a standardized menu that's amazing, uniforms that are great, and a cocktail menu that's award-winning. Is that stuff that you guys are starting to do? Like, let's spend some money and figure out a great condensed product with you know really cool branding and you know, plateware and, and uniforms, the whole thing, and then trying to roll it out so you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time? Yeah, no, actually, that's a really good point. No, you actually are ahead of us on that. We believe that letting the local food and beverage team take the lead makes more sense. There's a couple of additional things I want to mention. So we do have a brand new Marriott, which opened January 11th, Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., and our signature restaurant on the rooftop is called Yara, which one of the meanings in Latin is mermaid. So it's a Latin concept. It's outside or parts that are outside. And so there, our food and beverage group or food and drink innovation group, they worked with a branding company to come up with the concept and the name, as well as the service style, the tabletop and all that stuff. So you won't see Marriott on the point of sale system you know, when you're in there. There won't be name tags on the servers. So we aspire to have great food and beverage, and we run about 35 different outlets. And some of them, like Jimmy V's and Raleigh, really are community destinations. If they have a separate entrance or if they're rooftop, then you have the opportunity to really become part of the local dining scene and engage the community and get them in there for happy hour, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, being on open table, those kinds of things really helps. But in the traditional you know, West of Sheraton, Hilton, Marriott, that doesn't have that opportunity, let's say it's an airport location or a suburban location, you know, then we just say to our FB teams, you know, let's make sure that we're focusing on the local culture, the local food. You know, we want to do barbecue for Texas because our guests kind of expect that. You know, sure they want to have a burger on the menu, but they also want to have some local cuisine if you know they're going to dine with us. And so we've probably been less prescriptive. But the second thing I think it's really important to say is. You know, if we're going to do in our portfolio 150 million of food and beverage this year in 2023, two thirds of that is banquet and catering. So we've got a really good team just focused on that. 
it is a different business than a la carte or the outlets part of food and beverage. And that's super important. And we execute like crazy on both sides, but it's two different divisions within our organization. And they don't report up to one person. There's no food and beverage leader. They're two different leaders for two different businesses. That's brilliant. I love that. So I want to move now to a little bit about kind of like how you put these deals together on the capital formation side. You're one of the brightest people I know that thinks about really structuring a deal and spends time doing that. We dropped some names like Virgin Nashville. You mentioned the Marriott Hotel, which by the way, you built during COVID. And then also the Marriott Society Hill. Like pick pick one of those and kind of like walk me through how you got the deal, how you capitalized it, how you came up with the strategy and what your vision was and, and maybe some of the problems that you had and the successes that you had. Give me a little breakdown. Okay. All right. No, I appreciate that. So let's just talk about the Washington Marriott Capitol Hill that just opened this year. That is part of a, about a $500 million mixed use project. So there's three levels of parking, 40,000 feet of retail, 450 apartments, but we're only involved in the hotel. So that was one of the most challenging financial structuring and design projects that I've ever worked on. And not only were we a part of this massive development, but the people that were doing the balance of it were my 50% partner. So everything was through this really complex lens of how does it all blend together? And, you know, there were some economies of scale. It was like sharing stairwells within how do we control access back in the internet. So there's a thousand different technical challenges. That's where Yara, the rooftop restaurant is. How do we keep it secure, but also invite the residents of the apartments to come in there without having to go through the lobby? So we have special access on the rooftop for them. So again, a million different design challenges, really I'll call them opportunities because we really want to engage with not just the community, but with the residents for room service, and cleaning and the other services we can provide and drive revenue for the hotel and create a great amenity for those apartments as a differentiator. So that was really fun and really cool. The hotel, you enter you know, on the main street, as you would expect, but then the rest of it, that's just the lobby is there, lots of natural light, but the rest of it is tucked back into this large mixed use. And our view shed is really into the courtyard and out towards you know, the less desirable views because most people are just staying one or two nights. Whereas the apartments needed those better views because people are living there, right? So, And was that sorted before you came into the deal or did you help put that together No, we, came we in? helped put the deal together and went through the design from day one. My partner, really Bob Cohen from Perseus TDC, he bought the former Greyhound bus station and planned to do office on it. The world changed even well before COVID. So it's good timing now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. So he, he changed the format to the residential hotel. So on the structuring side, as you can imagine, it's much harder to finance a half a billion dollar project than it is a hotel, which still costs about $110 million. So we had to have a single construction order. And that really narrows down how many groups are going to do that. So no local regional bank can do that. It had to be you know, one of the large money center banks. And one thing I, I want to hold on that. So you're saying the bank financed the hotel and the apartments. So yeah, it was three different loans. But can you imagine having three different banks 
advancing to one contractor on one project, it would it would have been impossible. So the complexity actually, you know, probably ruled out some of our peers you know, even being considered to be part of it. You, we had to have the scale and the experience and the credibility to you know do something complicated like that. So we were able to obviously work through it since the hotel is open, but that was one of the huge challenges of you know finding one institution that was able to do all the components at that scale and you know, understood the difference you know between the asset classes and how they be financed, etc. I love the way that the capital markets have evolved, and I know you've taken advantage of this as well. So traditionally, we've worked with you know our friends and family to finance projects. So we'll put money in and we'll have people that either we went to school with or we know or you know, family friends you know, also join us in that endeavor. But now you have really you know terrific alternatives like uh, you know CrowdStreet and other crowdsourcing groups that you can go out to a much wider group of investors really all over the world. Of course all accredited investors, it's all very institutional, but that allows us to access capital that we would never otherwise get to. And what we found is when we deal with a more diffuse investor base like that, we have more control because when you're dealing with a really sophisticated private equity partner, for example, that joint venture agreement gets really long and really expensive. And then you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So you know, we're really pleased to have worked with CrowdStreet on this project. And then you know, again, a substantial amount of the capital is also from uh, our friends and family. Yeah, I'm super bullish on the crowdfunding thing. And he, like, take that deal where you could have gone to a private equity firm, but you went crowdfunding route and maybe some high net worth friends on top of that. Those people, those high net worth investors are really the same people that invest in private equity funds. So when they invest in that deal anyways, through the private equity fund, kind of around away, they're like, they end up paying kind of double promotes because the private equity firm is going to promote you and they have to get a promote on their investors, whereas you're offering a direct route. So sure, you're going to have more control, but the economics probably work out to put the individual investors in a better situation. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's really cool about it, Jake, I totally agree with what you said. The other thing that's cool about it is that the investor on these crowdfunding platforms, they decide, hey, I'm not feeling great about office, or I really want to do hotel because I believe recovery is going to be strong, or hey, I like BPG, or I love, you know, Warzak Hotel, um, et cetera. So they make the decisions, they have the discretion, they're looking at the universe of options, and, you know, either doing a balanced portfolio, hey, I want some of this, some of that, and some hotel, or they're saying, no, I really feel good about hotel, or I really have had success with BPG, I want to do whatever they're doing, even if it's office, et cetera. So it seems to be a really agile platform. And then also, you know, we don't have, CPAs financing in that project, but that's another kind of innovation in the capital markets that we take advantage of. There's um, Opportunity Zone Capital, another example of a government program that is really advantageous for investors if they have a game that they want to shelter. So we just try to be thoughtful about the most efficient capital. As we do new projects, you know, we're even talking to some public REITs about potentially providing MES capital because their cost of capital is lower. In return, what they would get would be the opportunity to buy that asset in the future if they want it. If they don't, then we've benefited from their capital along the way that we capitalize them out either through a recap or sell. But if they choose to buy it, then they'll have an advantageous opportunity that doesn't go to market and the investors will get a great return based on a formula that we agreed to up front. So we're never Do you think you can also get them to guarantee 
some of the debt if they're in that mez position with a rover? I don't think so. We haven't gotten there. I doubt that we will. I just don't know if they can you know, have that potential liability. That's an amazing strategy because the concern with Mez is like, hey, these guys can come and take my hotel. But essentially, you're pre-negotiating to sell them the hotel, assuming everything goes well. Their cost of capital right now, REITs can borrow way lower than you and I. So they're going to make a spread on that. It seems like a great deal. Why wouldn't all these REITs just be jumping up and down and backing you? Is that is that happening? Um, no, no. Matter of fact, you know, it's really just in the exploratory stage. We have a couple assets that you know, there's some interest. You know, one of our friends in the REIT space, it, but they're in markets that those guys want to get into. So they wouldn't just do it in a you know, Washington D.C. if you know they didn't have any reason to be here. So these are in markets that have high barriers to entry, and we frankly think our deals are pretty interesting. So we're not. Uh, we're actually gratified that they agree with us. And how do you think about Mez? Are you comfortable with Mez? Does it make you nervous? Like, where do you typically finance these deals? What sort of leverage point? You know, Jake, when when we're doing development deals, you know, typically with a hundred to two hundred. Well, actually, the one we're on Orlando is going to be about a two hundred eighty million dollar project. You know, you just have fewer options, and I think a lot of the larger, more sophisticated Mez lenders can be great partners. And many times are, um, and of course sometimes it gets adverse. You know, if there's an economic issue, or you know, heck, if I do something that's stupid, you know, sure I would deserve whatever remedy they use on me. No, I don't, I don't think so. No, <laughs> thank you. But so, so we actually look at them as you know a resource that we'll use very selectively. But if we were to do a traditional acquisition or you know a smaller development project, we, we probably wouldn't use those. Moving like on to, you mentioned you're going into private equity right now. You, you called it asset management, but it's I, I guess it's kind of the same thing. There aren't many other people that I know that are starting their own sizable discretionary funds that are kind of from our generation. You know, there's like the Blackstones and the Starwoods and maybe Lupert Adler, but it feels like they raise their money from these institutions and these pensions like, I don't know, in the 90s or the early 2000s. And those pensions just got very comfortable with them and they just keep giving them all the money. It feels very hard for someone new to break in. And and you've really had to start from the bottom up and create it. So I'd really like to hear your process and how you've been able to start a private equity firm with discretionary capital. Now you're, I think, on multiple repeat funds. Like how, how you do that from the bottom up? You know, our inspiration was, we looked at our business, we're like, hey, wait a minute, we're really good investors and we're really good at building stuff and we're really good operators and we're great stewards of capital. and We've just done it over and over with some good outcomes. The knuckle-dragging Neanderthal part of our business was capital formation. So like, so I'm working on a project like- Chicken and the egg, baby. Yeah, and like, God, now I got to call my friends and go, hey, we put some money in this deal. You know, that was, and I didn't really enjoy that too much. I think most people don't. I like it when I set up checks back. That's the cool part, right? When you see your buddies at a reunion and you're like, hey, man, thanks for tripling my money. So that's cool. But no, for the most part, you know, putting together the cap stack is, uh, is inefficient, not a great use of time, but it has to be you, right? You can't just hire somebody and go, oh, hey, I'm, uh, I work for Dave and I know you're Dave's friend and, you know, or Dave's sister. That doesn't work. They want to hear from me. And, and I don't blame them, right? So 
having a uh, an asset manager or a private equity business was the natural progression. You know, we wanted to have capital that was available and at our discretion so that we could be, you know, really decisive, you know, move forward on things quickly. And, you know, if it's between you, Jake, and, you know, some random person to buy an asset, the person who has discretionary capital is going to win because sellers want certainty of closing, right? So, so do you tell the brokers that like, hey, I've got discretionary funds. I don't oh, need anything else I can close. Yeah, 100%. And that matters a lot. That gets you into the second round or the final round or it gets you the deal at the end of the day. It's a huge differentiator in our space. And again, we're dealing, we're, we're competing with private equity, real estate investment trusts, you know, people that have discretionary capital, right? So if we didn't have, it's an arms race. You know, we had to arm up. So, so that was the idea behind it. We thought it was going to be more of a sponsor-based fund. And the second part of the fund business that we knew, but really is true, is that it is not real estate. Just like hotels are not real estate, the fund business is not real estate. So being real estate guys, we knew that we needed you know, someone who was really amazing and experienced in that space. So when PJ Yateman, you know, kind of said, hey, you know, I'm thinking big thoughts right now about my future, you know, we, we jumped on it. We had done a lot of like hundreds of millions of dollars of deals with him. He ran Lubert Adler. That's really the chief operating officer for many years. He and Dean still have a great relationship and Dean's rooting for us and working with us and vice versa. So it's a great collaboration. But so, you know, PJ is really the, the thought leader behind our uh, private equity business. And instead of being a sponsor fund, it's really transitioned to be more of an allocator fund. And the reason for that is we're just seeing a very different capital markets environment than we expected three or four years ago. There's a lot of need for perhaps equity, for innovative, smart, thoughtful you know, solutions. So that sounds like such a weenie Wall Street word, but a bespoke capital solution for you. But honestly, it's super flexible. And so we understand hotels, we understand operations. And the other nice thing that investors identify with is that we can do parallel underwriting with the sponsor. And so a lot of times our underwriting might be better than the sponsor, sometimes it's worse, and maybe we don't do the deal. And then the second part is, should there be an issue, a renovation goes wrong, a construction project gets hung up, an operator you know, just can't figure out how to hit budget, like we can step in. We don't want to, that's never the plan. It's not loan to own, but it gives us also- Which is very people. unique. Like most funds, like most private equity funds can't step in. They would just call someone like me and be like, hey, help, or you, right? So that is something that your investors now that you're creating these funds have told you that they really like? Yeah, exactly. And again, Corten is really a freestanding separate enterprise. It's in Philadelphia. I'm here at Chevy Chase, our co-headquarters in Wilmington. And it's got a completely separate deal team. So they took a lot of our really talented people from Office Multi and Hotel, and we put them over there. And that's where they spend 100% of their time. So it's a separate business. Although, you know, myself, Rob, and Chris Buccini and PJ are the investment committee. But, you know, again, we spent our entire careers in hotel, office, and multi, and PJ in the fund business. So... It feels like uh, we're off to a great start. We've exceeded $300 million raised and deployed so far. We're halfway through fund two and feel like we're on the right track. So when you said private equity is not real estate, what, what does that mean? Well, two thirds of your energy in a private equity platform are investor relations and compliance. And there is no way someone in real estate can do compliance. You really need someone, a CCO, who is from that area, studies it, has relationships with um, you know people in the space for credibility. And so there's no way that I could 
raise institutional capital, deploy it, do the investor relations, and oversee the compliance. It's it's really complicated. Again, not that it can't be done. It's done every day. It's just you need people who are really good at it. In your starting journey with Corten, what do you think the listeners would find most surprising about what you learned in that process? The amount of overhead that it takes to be really good at it's probably true. You know, you start a skateboard company, you probably need, you know, a similar set of resources, you know, financial, you know, so it, it was humbling in that we really needed to have a separate enterprise, you know, completely separate with all, you know, senior leadership in, in the various, you know, key areas. So, so that was it. It, it cost, you know, several million dollars to get the management company up and running to raise the funds, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that, I think you're, you touched on it earlier. It's like, it's a scale business. And, and many of the better known players are multi-million dollars, you know, over a hundred billion in many cases. And so I don't know that we'll get there, but you definitely have to have scale for it to be successful in enterprise. Do you have a number in your mind where you think for you guys, that's when you start to have the management business be really profitable and scaling? Yeah, I'd say, you know, for us, it's going to be $400 million uh, of AUM. We hope that once we get there, we know that we'll be selling assets as well. So it's, you know, continually raising funds. And so it'll grow incrementally. It's not like if fund three is 300 million, then also it'll be, oh, it's 700. You know what I mean? Because you're, you're redeeming deals as well and paying investors back. And then fund one, did you just like knock on some pension funds door and was like, hey, you know, here's our new fund. How did you get all the capital? How did you start those initial conversations? I'm giving away all the uh, all the inside secrets, but but you don't actually, have to answer it. Listen, no, these are trade secrets right here. No, but it's it's interesting because I, I'm, I'm very happy to share our experience because I think it can inform others as they think about you know best ways to structure a company and like where do you want to spend your time. So fund one was virtually all friends and family, and we knew that. So we were really doing fund one to get to fund two. Now fund one ended up being close to $100 million. And we have a $50 million sidecar associated with it. So it actually turned out to be pretty good scale. But again, it was all friends, people who invested with us. I'm trying to think there might have been one or two, you know, small pension fund investments in there. But you know, maybe that was $10 million and the rest was uh, cobbled together. And can your funds invest in your deals? Because you were, you know, obviously the dilemma that every real estate sponsor has is, hey, I got a deal, now I got to raise money. Could you invest in the deals that you were sponsoring? Technically, I believe we can. But the fact that I don't know the answer is because we never would. Um, right. We, we've learned that what institutional investors are looking for it's interesting because when you talk to the consultants, you know, the people, the gatekeepers, if you will, what they really focus on is not so much the strategy. Now, of course, they're in tune with the strategy. They have to understand it. But they spend a lot more time thinking about compliance and structure. And they really let their clients think about, well, hey, I really want to do more entrepreneurial real estate or I feel more comfortable with core real estate or other alternatives to you know, the public equity markets. And so... You know, again, having you know the compliance and institutional level reporting infrastructure in place is really a threshold investment that you have to make to get into that space. 
And Corten is investing across asset classes, right? So this is leveraging not only your hotel experience, but also on the Buccini side, all of their other assets that, that you focus on in that business? Yeah, well said. We're about 50-50 right now between hospitality and multifamily. We've invested in 25 hotels, some in portfolio, but 25 different hotels have been underwritten and invested. And on the multifamily side, we're able to generate high teams returns in that space. And a lot of people are surprised by that, but we have a track record of being able to do that, partly through relationships, partly through innovative structures, uh, partly through participating investments, et cetera. So again, innovation in the capital markets is ongoing and we're happy to be a small part of that. So do you think because you're vertically integrated and you're doing all this stuff across asset classes as your own sponsor, that makes Core 10 a better investment shop because you can creatively come up with structures or better ways to do things to generate more return? Yeah. And one yes, thank you for saying it that way. One example is we have a construction company called BPGS, and we have about 65 people. We oversee you know, a couple hundred million really? a year. We'll general our own projects. Matter of fact, right now, um, BPGS is building multiple apartment buildings for BPG. It's doing third-party work for the Morse Hospital. But also importantly, it's owner's rep for our hotel projects around the country. So we don't want to general something, for example, in Austin, Texas. I don't know the stuff there. And I don't want to take on the big you know, bonding risk. Let a general contractor there do it. But we're there, meaning our construction group, programming, designing, scoping, contracting, and then overseeing construction. Right. So that resource employed during due diligence on a fund investment, it's a huge advantage and it doesn't cost Corten anything because we already have that capability. So we have actually a multifamily construction investment in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, and BPGS constructions on site frequently. But before that, you know, they descoped it and confirmed that the construction budget was right and the timeline was right and they were able to qualify the contractor. So we get a big advantage that some private equity shops don't have. That was something we learned. You have a construction company too. So you have like a management company private equity firm, hotel, real estate investment company, sports business. When you were starting out with the Buccinis and forming this company, did you guys just say, yeah, we want to do everything vertically integrated because we can do it better than anyone else? You weren't afraid of taking on all that risk? Like, What, what was the thought and the strategy behind that? Yeah, thanks, Jake. Okay, I'm a control freak. I, I own it. I I don't want to like build a hundred million dollar asset and turn the keys over to someone else. I, like, I want to manage it. I, if there's an issue, I want to know about it the day it happens. And if we have to replace a general manager, I like I need to know that what it happens. Like, so I want to pick the new guy. So we've always been hands on. We've only started companies when we've had the right person to lead it. So BBGS Construction, West Schwant, the BBG Assets Schwant. We have our own purchasing company, Christina River Exchange, and that's Michelle Schwant, was his wife, who we induced to start that business because we We're doing it all own, we needed our own purchasing resource because i was just mad paying five percent to come and did nothing and we're like but you didn't do anything and they're like well we issued a po we're like no we gave you a anyway so and now we control all that stuff and i think we're buying things smarter and we're sourcing from europe again now because the dollar you know exchange means that we can buy stuff there less than we can make it in the us and the shipping issue so like like there's innovation happening in purchasing, which you would never know. But like we're into it, we love it. We run our own office building security, our own office cleaning business. Leasing is we have a joint venture for office leasing. 
but we really, we really enjoy operations. We love dealing with people. We feel like we can be more successful. And the, the real measurement of whether you're good at what you do is are other people hiring you to do it? And in most cases, the answer is yes. So a person company is about two thirds now non BPG projects, just an example. So before you start another vertical or before you get into something, at what point in your mind, do you start thinking, yeah, we need to take this in-house? Like you gave the purchase example, you didn't feel like you're getting full value from that. Is it, is it just a feeling you get? Is it you start looking at the cost that you're paying someone else and you're like, I should just be doing this in-house. I could provide better services. Is there something that clicks there? I, I think it's where most innovations start. It's where's the pain point? You know, so it was our office security company, you know, doing as good a job as we hoped and a really crucial, you know, part of the office business. And again, you can surmise what we thought the answer was. And so we, we felt that we should take that over. And, um, we took that under our office management business. You know, feel like we get lower costs and more control and a better outcome. I think there's a ton of smart people who choose not to have any operations at all and really just be technical and excellent and deploying capital. And I just, I just want people to know, I, have, I think that's brilliant. I probably work a little bit longer in the day than I'd like to having some of these additional responsibilities, but I really enjoy it. And I feel like we can continue to push the boundary and outperform by, by being innovative. Not that it doesn't sound too trite, but like, it's that's awesome. Roll. You're innovating, man. You're doing it. One, you're, you're definitely one of the people that I leaned on during COVID. And I'm interested to know, because I don't have this perspective, what it was like going through COVID, being completely devastating for hospitality while having other asset classes under your management and how you think about diversification what what were some of the things that became very apparent to you during you know your previous cycles and during COVID? Well, first of all, I would be washing dishes in one of your real tents if we were not diversified because we were we were pretty long. I think we owned thirty three hotels. You know, when COVID started, you know, real mix, some select service, extended stay, a lot of full service, and we know that especially the full service hotels, which are larger, got really banged up. So there was a ton of capital needed to just keep the doors open for uh, listed hotels. Anyway, the point being that the office and multifamily business really pulled us through. That ballast, you know, in the storm was unbelievably valuable. So I, I would just say that, did we do it because we felt that when a crisis came or if a, a violent cycle hit us, you know, we'd have this, no, it I just, that was one of the benefits, maybe an unintended benefit. But now we're seeing office cycle pretty heavily. And so we think that you know, our office team is going to have more ability to react. Hey, we need more TIs. Hey, we've got to renovate this building because if it's not A+, then we're going to lose our tenants as people shrink and you know, flight to quality occurs. So again, the, those three asset classes, God, if they ever cycled together in a good way, I would just be so happy. Like, it just seems like it's not, it's not our destiny to have everything clicking all at one time. But, well, then they'd go down all at one time and that defeats all purpose, right? <laughs> That's true too, yes. Yes. Is what's going on in office right now, are there things that you learned in 2020 and twenty through 2022 that you're like, okay, I saw this on the hotel side, the same thing's going to happen on the office side, or it's totally different? Well, 
Yeah, first of all, I don't know that the office story is written yet. I think office will recover. Although you're seeing really smart people say the opposite, right? The, you know, class. Okay, people. well, you're smart. So what do you think? Okay, I think office will recover probably to a greater degree than some others might. Because you know, we're investing over 10-year horizons, and that's a long time from now. You know, COVID was three years ago. It feels like 100 years, but it's only been three years. So I feel like you know, there will be a return to the office probably you know, more and sooner than people think. But what we're doing with some of our assets, for example, in Wilmington, Delaware, where we have a co-headquarters, is we're converting a 700,000-foot office building into a 400,000-foot office building by building 350 apartments on the top floors. So you know, that's not, we're not the only people doing that, but that's one of the investment thesis that Core 10 identified. And so we're employing it into our BBG business. So you know, that thought leadership is kind of going back and forth. We're really intrigued by that. It's something that we want Core 10 to really invest in. And we've you know, kicked the tires on a few things. And hopefully we'll get some of those done. We have not made an office investment in Core 10. Well, that's not true. We did buy an office complex prior to COVID, but actually doing okay. But we are buying, Jake, BPG is One Tower Bridge in Conshohocken. So it's a prototypical Class A office building but it's got great tenancy with great average lease term in an amazing location, irreplaceable asset. Fabulous location. Yeah. And so we're like, well, gosh, the basis is significantly below what it would have been pre-COVID because I think so many people are fleeing office. Then the other part of it is truly just capital markets, which is like when there's a problem, it's not just your problem. It's your lender's problem too. So We've now learned how to work together, you know, with the other stakeholders in an asset in a more complementary way. Maybe we're actually pulling them into the problem a little bit earlier and trying to share the responsibility for the outcome with them more. But, you know, we just don't take the phone calls like, hey, you got to repay me and this is your fault. Like, no and no. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Because you've (laughs) been through two very hard cycles whether you're in hotels or other real estate asset classes, the lender tries to make every single thing your problem and doesn't seem to want to listen to what's practical or reasonable. I have a funny recent story. So we have a parking garage. I don't want to say which city it's in. I'm not going to say the bank, but uh, it's in a city and the lender is actually based there and has a significant amount of the parking where they did. And so they're not pulling people back to the office. And so they called and said, okay, you guys are below 1.0 DSCR. We want you to pre-fund interest for the coming year. We said, we're not going to do that. The fact that we're under 1.0 is because you haven't called your people back. Don't call us again. Click. And we have recourse. And you're not scared about that? Like, I guess, what can they do? No, I would have been scared before, like, the Great Recession, Great Financial Crisis, whatever, JFAR. But now it's like, I'm not scared of lenders anymore. Now, we're respectful and we always repay our loans. And that's not the point. And we're not asking for DPO. We're saying, no, 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 you have a role to play here. And in this case, I thought it was really interesting that they were the customer of the asset that's under the best. Unbelievable. Wow. I think that's a great place to leave it and transition to sports because you've mentioned this to me a couple of times. I was shocked when you told me the first time but this is this another way to diversify your business or is this just a fun kind of vanity thing? How did you get into sports? Well, so 
I grew up with my uncle owning the Washington Wizards and Capitals, formerly the Bullets. And so I'd always been intrigued by it. And I had some of the most fun experiences in my life were when the Bullets won the NBA championship in 78. Because I'm really old, man. I was like 10 years old back then. And it was just such a thrill. So it's always been an aspiration. But how we got into it is just really, we stumbled into it. Man, talk about sometimes just like being in the right place at the right time. Okay. We owned an office building in Chester, Pennsylvania. It was a former power plant, a beautiful building. We did a tax credit deal. We got Wells Fargo into it, their auto leasing group, because they were looking for tax credits. To the south, there was a 30-acre parcel. The guy who owned the parcel called and said, hey, do you guys want to buy my land? We were like, nah, we don't need it. For, like, we just don't need it. So he put a tugboat operator in there, not to spite us. That just was who leased it. Dirty, noisy, smelly, environmental. And then the longshoremen were like whistling at the Wells Fargo auto leasing. The young women like, hey. So we had to like build a wall. It's like, damn, should have bought the land. So another guy, different guy, unrelated, called and said, I have 30 acres, exactly the same amount. On the north of your building, do you want to buy it? We're like, yeah, we'll take it. So we paid like 100 grand an acre for this big site in Chester, PA, just to insulate this tax credit deal that we had that was performing fairly well. And Major League Soccer awarded the Philadelphia franchise to Jay Sugarman, who is the smartest person I know in real estate after you, Jay Burns. And he was looking for sites. They identified two or three sites in their father. Chester was one of them. So we met with Jay, hit it off immediately. Again, he's just an amazing guy. Super nice, really smart, just a great strategic guy. And so he said, look, I like you guys, meaning me and Rob Lucci at the time. Why don't we team up? What do we build in Chester somewhere else? So we went and saw Governor Rendell and he said, well, you guys want to build it at the sports complex, you know, near the lake and all the other existing stuff. He goes, let me see how much money I have for you. And he like rumbled around his desk. And Robert, I'm looking for, was he like looking for like cheating? Like we didn't know what he was doing. He goes, boys, I got zero, nothing. You're on your own. <laughs> if you want to build a Chester, I got as much money as you need. So we're like, okay, Chester sounds good. So we built it on our property. We oversaw the development and the construction. We built it right as the Great Recession was getting started. So we got a great buyout. I think the stadium cost less than $150 million. And you look at stadiums today and they are you know, 500 million for a basic soccer stadium now. So we've really enjoyed it. We've just so impressed by how Jay runs the business. Our team's had a lot of success. Part of that is culture. And we've learned from how, but that's an intense operating environment, being on an athletic team. Some of that's infused us. So you not only got involved in the real estate side, but you also became an owner in the team. Yeah, so we contributed our land. We've invested more. We actually contributed the office building that was the reason we're in the first place into the team. So they now have 100 acres on the Delaware River. It's really, if you talk to Jay about his strategy for the team, it's really having everything together, which is unusual. So we're moving our academy down from YSC and Wayne, building additional fields, building a field house so we can practice indoor and outdoor. It'll be the home stadium for Union 2, which is our... Uh, MLS next team. So again, there's a vision for what this will ultimately be in a few years. And again, it's all Jay's, you know, brilliant guy that's come up with a great strategy. What were some of the biggest lessons in dealing with Jay that that you've learned from either how he manages the soccer business or on his real estate investments? So I would say I'm trying to think, you know, a year or two ahead, which is not easy. He's thinking, you know, 10 years a generation ahead. You know, examples he started Safehold, which is his ground lease company. And again, without going into what they do, 
it was a, a brilliant move at the time, you know, capitalizing on opportunities in the capital markets and uh, you know, providing a really amazing investment product for people. So just things like that. But on the on the union side, we have not been going over to Europe and paying $20 million a year to you know some big name player to come over. We've been building through our academy. So the people playing in the first team, the union, union two, and then in the academy all play. And then the club teams, you know, kids as young as six are all playing the union way. So when they move through our system and they get to the first team, they know how we play and they know our culture and they fit right in. And secondly, if you create your own talent, it's a lot more cost effective than going out and hiring it. So if someone comes for a year or two or they get hurt or they don't buy in, et cetera, just the risk is so high. And so we've known these kids, many of whom are homegrowns on the team now, you know, since they played when they were 10 years old, you know, for one of the academy teams. It's just a really cool way that, you know, and then the talent evaluator that he brought over from Germany, Ernst Tanner, just, you know, brilliant and hearing him think about talent has helped us think about talent as well. But just like a super quick story from the beginning is, you know, Jay is a real CEO of a, of a public company. And so he didn't really have a place to put the players on payroll. We didn't, didn't have office space. So they were in our office in Wilmington and like, you know, the coach and the technical staff would be like game planning. And I'd be like, hey guys, I've got to be the investor. Get the fuck out of the office. <laughs> and so, like, no, but we're playing New York tomorrow. I'm like, I don't care. I'm meeting with investors. Were they on now. the BPG payroll? Or are you just set up like a new payroll. little policy? <laughs> we were cutting their checks. It was really fun. It's obviously a, you know, different now. And, you know, it's all, you know, it's very sophisticated, but the early days were really fun. So the NFL teams has always been described to me as like a, you know, bond investment, like, you, you, don't, you don't make money when you own it, but when you sell it, you make money. Is that true in the soccer world or can you make money along the way? I think there's a subset of teams that make money. And typically, Jake, they're in a market without the other four major sports. And in Philadelphia, if you think about the heritage of the Sixers, and of course, the Eagles, the Flyers, and Phillies, you know, Super Bowl. 75 years, 100 years. And so... You know, we've been going at it for 13 years. And so we're building that kind of, you know, loyal fan base. And people really love the experience of, you know, an intimate stadium with 18,000 people. Like it is different than going to a Sixers game. It's, it's a, most people experience it. It's pretty cool when they come back. But other than, I would say, most markets with only one or two other teams, Portland comes to mind, Portland, Oregon, where the Timbers are, you know, thought to be really successful as well as profitable. You know, we're, we're pleased with where we are financially. And we do feel like the majority of the financial return will come when we sell, but we're, we're not planning to sell anytime soon. We have a vision, you know, to win a couple MLS championships, to get our campus done, to get all our teams playing there at the same place. So we're, we're a few years away from even thinking about that. All right, man. This was an awesome conversation. I think we covered it all. I have... One closing question that I ask everyone, and that is of all the hotels that you've been to, okay, <laughs> not your own portfolio. I don't want to hear about the Hilton Wilmington or something <laughs> like that. Okay. Yes. What is your favorite hotel? Well, that's got to be Governor's Camp in the Maasai Mara in Kenya. So tell me about it. It's uh, like a lot of the game camps tents with concrete floors and showers, you know, so, and then 
you gather in the central place with the other guests uh, for meals, and there's a huge fire pit at night, and there's guards there, uh, the Kamaskari, you know, with spears. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. I wonder if that's just for show. And so one night we were out around the campfire, and one of the friends we were with, uh, which I telescope with me, Julie Pativa, she actually said, I'm going to go take a shower, guys. So she was in the shower, and an elephant walked into camp. There was a tree right outside her tent where the shower was, and the elephant started rubbing his back on the tree, and the tree started to lean in the tent. And Julie goes, hey, Julie said, hey, quit messing with me, guys. Stay within the tent. We're like, Julie, get out of the shower. Get out of the shower. Because when the elephant lies down, it's either going to lie this way or that way. And if it goes this way, it would have crushed her. And so the elephant's laid down. We're like, Julie, run. She's like, ha, ha, ha. And he laid down with that way. It didn't crush our friend in the shower. Wow. So Did the guys with the spears experience. come out? <laughs> yes, like Ascari. Like, nothing we can do with an elephant. Yeah. So they just crush it. They're so running that's away. That's a tough experience to emulate in any Hilton anywhere. We covered it all. You're the man and a very good friend, Dave Poland. Thank you for joining me on Masters of Moments. Jake, thank you. Appreciate it. And I'm going to have you on my podcast one day. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.